Well, we have seen David hide. We have seen David fight. We've seen David sin and confess sin. We've seen David rise and fall and return to Jerusalem to rule. What we haven't seen is David sit down to write. But right through it all, he did. Open with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Our text this morning will be 2 Samuel chapter 22 through 23 verse 7. When Ryan asked me to preach this Sunday, I could feel a bit of regret uh, in his words. Ryan has had a string of texts laced with complex uh, conspiracies and conflicts and at many times obscure names and places. It has been brutal, pun intended. But today's text, two beautiful poems written by David. This poetry isn't here to break up the material or just keep our attention. It's here to unify the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel, which is itself a single work. And it's here to train our attention on the very center of that story and the meaning of it. The first poem we'll look at is a song. It's the entirety of chapter 22, and in it, David looks back on his life. The second poem is David's last words, his last official words as king. And and in those words, David looks forward through and beyond his death. Before we read this together, let me set it up a bit. You'll remember when the series began some time ago of 1st and 2nd Samuel, that it began with a poem, the prayer of a lowly woman named Hannah. And Hannah was barren and brokenhearted because of it. But the meaning of her barrenness was deeper than it may have appeared at first. It was symbolic of the spiritual barrenness of God's people, her people, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, even the leaders, but the Lord gave Hannah a child. And so Hannah prayed a really big prayer with really great expectations. And she said things like this, my horn is exalted in the Lord. She said, there's no rock like our God. He brings low and he exalts. He guards the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. And against his enemies, he, the Lord, will thunder in heaven. And she closed her prayer with these words. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The words of a woman who knew the bigness of her God and the brightness of his plans for her people. She spoke of a king before there was a king. And her son, Samuel, anointed David king. And little David... God's king was exalted, and strong Saul, the people's king, was brought low. And now as David picks up the pen to write what Hannah saw by faith when she prayed, David has seen with his eyes. What Hannah expected, David experienced. And as he looks back, only poetry can even attempt a just portrayal of what God has done and what he promises to do. And as this is poetry, I counted no less than 52 metaphors or little little pictures in these two poems. So get your imaginations on and let's look together at the inside of the walls of David's soul. 2 Samuel 22, all the way through 23.7. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the wages, the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. And the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were, late, were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hand for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me as soon as they heard of me. They obeyed me. 
foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be, the God, be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You have exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who is raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. Five pictures for God's praise. Five pictures for God's praise. A rock, a scale, a foot, a reversal, and a son. You can draw them if you want. You'll notice in the back of your bulletin, you've just got a line per point. You can write the word, or you can draw a picture. This is what preaching with poetry means. Use your imagination. Receive the sermon a bit differently. That's okay. When David looks back on his life, he thinks of God, and he sees a rock. He sees a rock. Verses 1 through 20. Six times David has called God a rock in these two poems. If the psalm, the song, the first poem sounds familiar, it may be because it's basically Psalm 18, almost exactly identical to it. It's as if the author of 1 and 2 Samuel pulled that psalm as the best to represent the thrust of David's life and heart and to end the book with. And at the head of this song... David bursts with praise to God for his strength and he uses a blast of images. He calls God a fortress, a deliverer, a refuge, a shield, a horn of salvation, a horn representing his strength, a stronghold, and a savior. What do these have in common? Well, they are strong, they are immovable, and they're safe. And so is God for David, a rock. Not like the rocks in the backyards of our homes, but like the rock in the backyard of our city, the Sandias. So when you think of God as a rock and a refuge, think of that. And when you see the mountain, think of God as a rock and a refuge. Immovable, going nowhere, and strong. But notice that to David, God is more than a rock. For David puts it in such personal terms. This is one difference between Hannah and David's prayer. For David, God is my rock, and he's my refuge. David knows God as his rock 
personally. It's easy to say that God is a rock when life is like a rock, steady, consistent, reliable, predictable. But David's circumstances weren't like a rock at all. They're more like water, torrential, terrible water. Look at verse 5 and 6. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. Torrents, waves, cords, snares, the edge of death was much of David's life. Maybe you'd describe your life in similar ways, like being crashed about in the waves of the sea without anything to hang on to. Well, David could call God a rock, his rock. And so, in the same way that our lives are unpredictable, And dangerous at times, we even stare down the grave as we live. We can cling to God as our rock and speak of him in such personal terms just as well. For David, his pursuers lusted for his life. The beginning of the song tells us the context for the song. It's when God delivered him from his enemies and from Saul. It's placed here as a kind of summary of David's life, a life filled with enemies, Absalom, his own son, forming a coup to overthrow his kingship. The Philistines, time and again, after his neck. The man lived with death warrants from within his people and from without. In his distress, and this was a life filled with much distress, In his distress, what did David do? Look at verse 7. Did he despair? It says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And what did God do? From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. I called. He heard. My friends, this is the stuff of salvation. Scripture tells us everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that doesn't mean that everyone who repeats a kind of formula will be saved. But everyone who knows that they are doomed apart from God and cries out to him for help will be saved. In David's distress, he did not despair. He cried out to the one who is stronger than his circumstances. He cried out to the one who is a rock in a sea of crashing and dangerous and torrential waves. Out among the crashing waves, he clung to the only secure thing, the Lord. I called, he says, and he heard. God heard, but what did God do? Three words could have gotten the truth across. David could have said, and God saved me. But three words would not have gotten the fullness or the effect of that truth across. And that's what poetry is for. God is strong like a rock. Well, he's also strong like a dragon. A rock is immovable, secure, and certain. But a dragon can move anything at once. Verses 7 through 16 are at the same time horrifying and happy. God heard David's cry and he was angry, not at David and not on account of David's cry but for what David was in the middle of and angry at those who would take his life. His anger from the heavens reels and rocks the earth, smoke going up from his nostrils and fire from his mouth, glowing coals flaming forth. It's an incredible description of God. 
And then he bows the heavens down and steps down on the earth and comes for his. Darkness under his feet, surrounded by a canopy of darkness from gathering clouds as a storm. And in the midst of this darkness, he is a brightness bursting forth as he flies about on the wings of the wind. I can only picture Smaug from, is that his name? From Lord of the Rings? Smaug? All right. That's what I picture. Darkness under his feet. Irate, ferocious, armed with lightning and arrows, he will get what he came for. The breath of his nostrils lays bare the channels of the sea. The foundations of the world are laid bare because of his anger. You may hear this description of God and scratch your head, or maybe you you hear it and bang your head against the wall because... uh, it's offensive to you and you don't want to imagine God this way, then imagine your kids coming home from Sunday school with a picture of God, and it's this. Like, really? For some, God's anger is a problem because it seems to contradict, contradict his love. But the purest love will be angry at anything that seeks to harm that which is properly, properly loved. And every person and every people and every culture will have its rules according to what's right and wrong, what is what is loved and what is hated. And, and your, own, your own goodness, your own rightness as a human will be measured according to how you respond to what is properly loved and what is lost. Anger is something even that indicates there's something right with you and a lack of anger at what's truly evil is an indication there's something wrong with you. So anger, anger doesn't contradict God's love at all. It actually, it actually proves his love. And if that's true, and if we're honest, apart from Christ, as we'll see, that God's anger is actually a problem for us because it's fixed on us and our sin. But for David, God's wrath is not a problem. It's the answer to his problem. It's actually his salvation. It's his salvation like a father's anger at his son's abuser as he sleeps in to rescue his son. And God will actually call David his son, his representative of humanity and the means by which he'll save humanity. Some get God's arrows and lightning. And what does David get? Look at verses 17 and 18. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. The Lord's anger at wickedness was David's salvation. Well, why did God do this for David? Why did God deal with David in this fashion? Look at verse 20. David says, Because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. And why did God delight in David? This brings us to our second picture, the second section of the song. For this, we'll use a picture of a scale. A scale, verses 21 through 31. Here's why God delighted in David. Verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness. My cleanness in his sight. What earth is David talking about here? I mean, really. What is David thinking as he writes this? This claim if we know David and his life seems more fantastical than that dragon thing we just watched unfold. 
If you overheard someone say this at Starbucks, you'd probably pray for them and like hope for an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel. And you don't need to know a thing about a person who says this kind of thing to know they need to be corrected a bit and helped. And yet we know enough about David to know that this can't quite be right if we're hearing him right. Did David and the author of 1 and 2 Samuel forget the fact that he's a sinner and forget his adultery and forget his murder of Uriah? Maybe this is one of those moments where we're supposed to roll our eyes at David. Well, if we're gonna, if we're gonna have we're gonna have a hard time hearing and appreciating what David is saying here if we don't figure out what he is not saying first. So two questions. Two questions. Uh, what was this true of David? Was he really righteous? And secondly, more importantly, does salvation work this way according to merit? We'll consider three layers of context. First layer of context would be the context of the song. Uh, this is poetry. It's going to assume some things that are obvious so not to lose the beauty of the song with qualifications that don't need to be made. Yes, David sinned, but on the whole, David obeyed the Lord. And yet there are some self-interpreting lines here. Look at verse 28. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And David was humble. When confronted with his sin, he wrote Psalm 51. David was humiliated by his sin and came to God humbly. David's alignment with God was in the first place because of his humility, humility the theme of the books of First and Second Samuel. And later in verse 33, he'll write, he has made my way blameless, even giving God credit for his own blamelessness where he's blameless and recognizing that God cleanses him from his sin. But consider the occasion for the song. This will be helpful. The song is written after David's rescue from Saul and his enemies. So with respect to his dealings with his enemies, David is saying he was blameless. And in that narrow sense, yes, we can say David was blameless. He was blameless. David was innocent with respect to Saul. There are psalms in which David will appeal to the Lord on account of his innocence with respect to an enemy who's seeking his life. And in the same psalm, say things like, if you were to search me all the way out, I couldn't stand. As in, he's admitting his sinfulness before God, while at the same time saying, I'm innocent with respect to my enemies. So was David righteous? In a limited and real sense, yes, he was righteous. He was righteous when he didn't kill Saul in the cave, but took a part of his cloak. And he was righteous when he wept at Saul's death. He was not assuming the position of God, but was humble before God. That's the context of the song itself. It's also just helpful to consider the context of the book. We should assume that David and the author of 1 and 2 Samuel were not schizophrenic or morons uh, to place this here for it to be in contradiction with the story itself, but they interpret each other. And third, the context of the covenant story of the Bible. God made great promises to David, but those promises were coming into reality, came into reality, hanging on David's obedience. So that's why, that's why when God made a covenant with David, he said, I'll chastise your son, you and your son, for disobedience. So obedience was required. David, God made a certain and sure promise to David that he'd have an everlasting throne and a son would sit on that throne forever in a righteous rule. But, but that would come about in coordination with David's own obedience. 
Now, this may raise a question in your minds as to whether the Bible is saying two contradictory things. Doesn't the Bible teach that salvation is a gift and not a wage? I mean, with a wage, you get what you deserve, and that works. But David's saying that's sort of how his salvation works. Is this a problem for us that God treats his king according to the king's righteousness? And I would say, no, it's not a problem. It's actually good news. And before your head explodes then, follow me here. God has always required perfect righteousness, right? I mean, Adam was booted from the garden because he lacked righteousness. God's covenant with Moses had conditions, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. And the same with his covenant with David. But in God's new covenant, there are conditions as well. And what's the difference with the new covenant? It's that the new covenant has a better mediator, where Moses and Israel and where David failed to meet the conditions, our mediator, Jesus Christ, meets God's condition of righteousness perfectly. And therefore, by our association with Christ through faith, we ourselves stand righteous before God. But it's not that God has not required righteousness. So in a real sense, get this, salvation is by works. It's just that we need someone who's qualified to perform them for us. David can say, you've treated me according to my righteousness. And it's a bit of an overstatement and not the summary of his whole life. But Jesus can say, you have treated me according to my righteousness. And it's true all the way down. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God treats us according to Christ's righteousness. So hear this. This God, verse 31, his way is perfect. Perfect. He compromises none of his justice and none of his righteousness in accepting the likes of you and me because his king has obeyed perfectly. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord does prove true and it proved true in David's life. And this can be captured in the image third of a foot. The image of a foot. Verses 20, 32 through 46, hold that image there. Look first at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The same question that Hannah herself asked. The answer is even more sure at the end of David's life. No one, there's no one like him. Not the greatest of gods that we could imagine and think up can compare with the Lord, for they're all imaginary. The Lord is a rock. The Lord is God. And how do we know this? By how he strengthens his lowly but chosen servant David to rule. That's how. Don't forget the point of 1 Samuel 17, the famous story of David and Goliath. The point was not that David was great. The point was that David was weak and he won because God is great. David was God's newly anointed king, but he was just a boy, the youngest of his brothers. He was carrying the lunchboxes and cheese to his brothers on the front lines. Yet he took down Goliath with a mere stone. And how? Well, listen to his own words. The, own wor- the words that David himself said to Goliath's face. Good night. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Not by might shall a man or God's king prevail, but by trust in God's might. And this, David's trusting in God for victory, this, the purpose of it, is so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And so that God's people may know that the Lord does not save them by man's might, but by his own. The battle is the Lord's. We're tempted to read the hide points of David's life and see his greatness and his strength. We see David with a sling. We see David with a sword. We see David, a careful military tactician. David is engaged in strategic ways in his own victories. But there's a reason David did not write at the end of his life about how he is a rock and how great he is. There's really none of that in this psalm, is there? Here's what David saw. Listen to the pronouns here in verses 33 through 43. Watch this. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. I pursued, I consumed, I thrust them through. They fell under my feet, he says. For you equipped me with strength and you made those who rise against me sink under me. Was David strong? Yes. But he did not write of himself as a rock at the end of his life because the Lord was his strength all along and he knew it. The Lord is David's rock. Who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? And what is the proof of God's sheer incomparability? That he is God? Just look at David's feet. Look at how swiftly they move. God does that. Look at how they go from danger to a broad and safe place. God does that. And look at what's under his feet, his enemies. And when we look at David's feet and what's under them, we see the dead who wanted God's anointed dead. We remember how committed God is to his promise in Genesis 3.15 that a son of Eve one day would crush the head of the serpent. For behind all of these conflicts in David's life with those who lust for his death, David ultimately sees God's conflict with the serpent and the serpent's offspring. Behind Goliath and behind the Philistines and behind Saul is Satan himself twisting the minds and hearts of men to kill his king. And God won't have it. David is a foretaste of how God will put humanity back in its rightful place. It's true, the author of Hebrews says that at present we don't see everything in subjection to him, that is Christ. 
But one day, as Paul writes, the end will come when he delivers God, the Christ, the kingdom, of, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under, under his feet. David's enemies were the servants of the serpent in this world out to destroy God's king, the hope of the world. God would not have it. And so when we look under David's feet, we look forward to the day when all things will finally be under Jesus' feet. Which leads us to the last section of the first poem, David's song, and a fourth image. A fourth image, an image of a reversal. A reversal, verses 47 through 51. And for this, you draw whatever you want. Uh, if you come up with a really good image for a reversal, then come let me know what it is. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out something obvious that wasn't cheesy. Uh, a pulley. A pulley might work. Two opposing arrows. A reversal. But watch the movement in verses 47 through 51. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. Exalted be the God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance, who brought down peoples under me who brought me out from my enemies and exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. And he ends his song the way Hannah ended her prayer. For this I'll praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. And he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. He brought down his enemies and he exalted his king. He's committed to his king so this word reversal captures nicely the simple center of a complex book of First and Second Samuel. Reversal. In all of its complexity, this, in this book, we have watched God work out a very simple principle of salvation. That he exalts the humble and brings low the proud. He has saved his people through a weak man made strong through his humility and trust in David. It's what more than half of Hannah's prayer expressed, actually, by way of expectation. That is this idea of reversal. In Hannah's prayer, the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind up strength. The full are hiring themselves out for bread, but the hungry are full. The barren has seven children, and she with a full homer is forlorn. The Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust so that they sit with princes. Not by might shall man prevail, he will give strength to his king. David's song is an answer to Hannah's prayer. Reversals, which ends the first poem, David's song. Now the second poem and a final picture. The picture of a son. A son. 23 verses 1 through 7. In this song, in his song, David has been looking back on his life and seeing God's faithfulness. And now in his last words, in this second poem, he looks forward through his death to God's faithfulness. Verse one, now these are the last words of David. And the words that come from the Lord are a few words away. Half of what he says here is by way of setting up what he's going to say. He begins by the statement of his identity. With respect to his birth, he's a son of Jesse, an unknown with respect to the world, he was low, but he was raised up on high. With respect to God, he was God's chosen anointed, the savior for his people. And with respect to his people, he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. I mean, no wonder that 
First and Second Samuel, the story of David, God's king, would end with a psalm for David penned many, many psalms, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And now in emphatic terms, David indicates that what he is about to say is God's very word for his people. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me, verse 2. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Before we can continue with what he says, we can imagine what was going on in his own mind and his very last, perhaps, moments. We remember another time when the Lord spoke to him, when God rehearsed how he had taken David from pasture with the sheep and made him a prince over his people, when God promised him rest from his enemies, and when God promised him much more with words that would stay with him, when God said this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Those were God's words for David. And now through David, God gives David words for the people. Thus speaks the rock of Israel. Verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house so stand with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. The darkness that covers this world, the darkness that David knows inside himself and around him and coming at him would meet the sunrise of God's righteous and happy rule through a son to come from his line. And as David stares down the grave, his sons haven't been a great showing so far, but David is sure of God's promise. So David's last words pull us forward. The sun has not risen with David, but it would rise, and David would go into the ground. The enemy of death is alive and well, but David's face is bright as he looks at it. What Hannah expected in David has come in David, but there is more to come still. And so there was another young lady many years later, hundreds of years later, who found out she was expecting and was excited about her pregnancy, similar to Hannah. She was expecting, and like Hannah, she was greatly expectant. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We'll read verses 46 through 55 in just a moment. These are the words of Mary. This is what Mary said when she learned of her conception by the Holy Spirit. And what did she say? Well, she wrote a poem, a prayer, a song, another verse, if you will, in the Bible's song of salvation. Luke 1, 46, and Mary said this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. How better for God to show how he saves by his own might and not human might than for him to come in the person of his son into the womb of lowly Mary in an obscure rural town of Nazareth as David borrowed from Hannah's prayer and as Mary borrowed from Hannah's prayer in David's song it is good news for us that these are our songs too. And that in our prayers, we can borrow from all, all three. You know, it's as though Mary had been meditating on the story of First and Second Samuel, but probably not that morning. The story, God's plan, a vision of God, and a vision of his plans and purposes was wrought through her heart in such a way that when she was visited by God, and the Holy Spirit conceived a child within her. This is what she had to say. Her words echoed the words of David and echoed the words of Hannah in praise to God, magnifying him for the reversals that he brings about. She knows how he works. And so her song is ours. The Lord is our rock as well. Jesus is a rock for us. And so, and so we're safe. Jesus is righteous God treats us on account of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is God's son in whom he is well pleased and he is well pleased with us because Jesus himself was perfectly obedient. And while we don't see everything under Jesus' feet now, everything will be under Jesus' feet, even the enemies of the devil and of death and of sin. And we sing, for we were not wise or of noble birth either. We were lowly. Even now we are low and despised in this world, but God saves through weakness and all those who call on the name of the Lord who know their helpless estate will be saved. Christianity is a weak-looking religion. Just expect it to be so. Our Savior whom we follow died on a cross and he saves and exalts the lowly. He saves through his own might and not man's. That should affect how we think about God, our Christianity, and even our church. These are our songs, and so we magnify the Lord with Mary. We exalt in the Lord with David and Hannah, and we boast in the Lord. That's how the Apostle Paul put it, and not ourselves. We preach Christ, the perfect Son of God, crucified, through whom the Son has risen on us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this beautiful word this morning on the pages of 2 Samuel with one sermon left to go in this series, we pray, that, we pray that this poetry, placed where it is at the end of the book, would grab us, grip us, and not leave us. That while the ups and the downs and the turns in the story of First and Second Samuel will be hard to recall, if impossible to recall without rehearsing them and reading through these books, we pray that the main thing about them would not leave us, and that is 
that you save not by the might of men, but by your own. You bring about great reversals. Your salvation is not intuitive. We thank you for a mediator, a king that we follow who was himself perfectly righteous and therefore can save those who aren't, who trust in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.